Welcome to My Cousin Jane, a podcast about Jane Austen and her works, with your host, Lee Phelan. Welcome back to another episode of My Cousin Jane. Each week, we look at what you might think of as the behind-the-scenes featurettes or deleted scenes of a particular chapter in Austen's books. And this week, we're going to talk about Pride and Prejudice, Chapter 14. Chapter 14 picks up right as dinner with Mr. Collins is ending. Mr. Bennett invites Mr. Collins to discuss his patroness, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Mrs. Bennett asks some further questions about Lady Catherine and her daughter. And towards the end of the chapter, Mr. Collins is invited to read to the ladies. Even though one of the best parts of this chapter is listening to Mr. Collins be absurd, there are also a lot of really interesting history about what is said. So let's jump right in. At the start of the chapter, Mr. Bennett asks Mr. Collins about his patroness, Lady Catherine, and let's listen to a clip of his response, and as always, our audio clips come courtesy of Karen Savage and LibriVox.org. The subject elevated him to more than usual solemnity of manner, and with a most important aspect he protested that he had never in his life witnessed such behavior in a person of rank, such affability and condescension as he had himself experienced from Lady Catherine— she had been graciously pleased to approve of both of the discourses which she had already had the honor of preaching before her. So, sermons were like the TikTok of the Regency era. According to the Oxford Handbook of the British Sermon, the period between 1689 and 1901 was, quote, the golden age of the sermon in Britain. It was the best-selling printed work and dominated the print trade until the mid-19th century. Now, while many sermons were discourses on worship, personal religious conviction, and morality, sermons during this time period weren't confined to these topics. Sermons were often given on politics, science, culture, civil rights, and even patriotism. Historians have pointed out numerous examples in British history where a particularly popular sermon could sway the votes of an entire village, change the outcome of a trial, or even exert a strong enough influence over Parliament to affect change at the national level. And sermons during this time period weren't the exclusive venue of the clergy either. Regular men and women also preached popular sermons which were often distributed in written form. Some of the more popular ministers could attract crowds in the thousands and would sometimes rent large venues to accommodate their listeners. In addition, traveling preachers carried those sermons across the British Empire. The most popular sermon of the time was The Perils of False Brethren, a sermon given by Anglican clergyman Henry Sacheverell on the dangers posed by any church leader or member of parliament who would dare alter the Church of England's doctrine. Conservative estimates are that there were at least 100,000 copies of this sermon in circulation during the height of its popularity. That doesn't sound like a lot by today's standards, but for a printed sermon at the time period, it was basically a national bestseller. Later on, Mr. Collins also mentions this about Lady Catherine. She had also asked him twice to dine at Rosings, and had sent for him only the Saturday before to make up her pool of quadrille in the evening. I've mentioned previously that I've hoped to never have to describe the rules of another card game on this podcast. And unfortunately, quadrille is quite possibly the worst game to try and describe over a podcast. One of the reasons whist became so popular in the mid-19th century was because quadrille was just really complicated to play. Descriptions of quadrille in the early 1800s vary quite a bit, as there were a bunch of different variations and styles, 
And books published during that time describe variations on the game, but they all assume that the reader was already familiar with the rules. In fact, an 1822 book on quadrille written under the pseudonym Quanti, which is considered the Bible of quadrille, remarks, quote, I have known it to happen that a party, being desirous to play at quadrille, has been obliged to forego the pleasure of the entertainment for want of someone to regulate the various payments, end quote. In other words, it's so complicated that people would sit down and want to play it, but they weren't clever enough to figure out the rules. David Parlett, author of A History of Card Games, has an original copy of Quanti and notes that it is 96 pages long. Parlett does a good job of summarizing the rules, though, and I advise you to check out his book if you're curious about it. One thing I will note, though, is that during this time period, Quadrille was extremely popular in France, particularly amongst women of the court. So it was considered something of an upper-class ladies' game. So it's a little ironic that Mr. Collins would be invited to play. Not that men didn't play quadrille, but usually when men were involved, people would switch to a different game. All right, let's transition away from ladies' card games to ladies' modes of conveyance. She is a most charming young lady indeed. Lady Catherine herself says that, in point of true beauty, Mr. Berg is far superior to the handsomest of her sex, because there is that in her features which marks the young lady of distinguished birth. She is unfortunately of a sickly constitution, which has prevented her from making that progress in many accomplishments, which she could not have otherwise failed of, as I am informed by the lady who superintended her education, and who still resides with them. But she is perfectly amiable, and often condescends to drive by my humble abode in her little phaeton and ponies. Back in episode 12 of season 1, we had a long discussion about Regency transportation and the different types of vehicles, so make sure you listen to that episode if you haven't already. But there were a couple in that episode that I mentioned I was purposefully leaving out for discussion in the future, and one of those is the phaeton. Phaetons are open carriages, typically with large wheels and high suspensions, and that made them relatively dangerous at high speeds. It wasn't uncommon for people to be thrown out of phaetons, especially some of the springier models, which were often called high flyers. And in the 1995 movie adaptation of Sense and Sensibility, Willoughby mentions that one of the reasons he doesn't like Colonel Brandon was that he had found fault with the balance of his high flyer, which when I first saw that movie, I thought was some kind of special kite. But as we mentioned, a high flyer is a particularly high-riding and dangerous model of Phaeton. And you can catch a glimpse of Willoughby's high flyer in the movie as he and Marianne race through town. Though in the book, Willoughby actually says that Brandon found fault with the hanging of his curricle. And as we mentioned on our previous discussion about vehicles, the curricle had two wheels instead of four and was considered the sports car of Regency-era vehicles, which I think actually suits Willoughby's character a little bit better. Now, speaking of character, let's listen to this exchange between Mrs. Bennett and Mr. Collins. Has she been presented? I do not remember her name among the ladies at court. Her indifferent state of health unhappily prevents her being in town, and by that means, as I told Lady Catherine one day, has deprived the British court of its brightest ornaments. Daniel Poole, author of What Jane Austen Ate and Charles Dickens Knew, calls being presented at court one of the major rituals of British society. While the exact procedure and qualifications for presentation to the monarchy has changed over the years, there's a really great children's book that was written in 1805 called The Book of Ranks and Dignities of British Society, which outlines exactly how this process worked during the Regency era. 
As a side note, while this book was published anonymously, many people believe it was actually written by Charles Lamb because he alludes to just such a book in a letter that he writes to his friend Thomas Manning. However, other scholars dispute this, claiming that the book shows none of the usual characteristics of Lamb's writings. But if you look up the book today, you'll find that it's attributed to Charles Lamb. Regardless of who wrote it, since it was written in 1805, it serves as a great source of information on various aspects of British noble society. So if you need to know the minutiae of how someone in the Regency era would address a letter to a baron, or how an alderman of London took office, it's a great source of information. According to the text, both men and women were presented to the monarchy to mark significant events in their lives. Men were first presented to the king in a royal reception, which was also called a levy, and then to the queen in the adjacent drawing room. Women were often presented to the queen first. If the king happened to be present during those presentations, which he usually wasn't during this time, they were then presented to the king as well. But usually what happened was that select women were invited by the queen to Windsor for a subsequent presentation to the king. The actual presentation of both men and women generally proceeded in the same fashion. A card with the presentee's name, rank, and reason for presentation was given to a steward. In the case of men, this was usually the lord of the bedchamber. And during the time Pride and Prejudice takes place, this would have been William Fortescue, the first Earl of Clermont. While for women, the card was given to the Lord Chamberlain. It's difficult to say who this would have been during this period because the dates of Pride and Prejudice are a bit fuzzy, and there was a vacancy in the office between 1810 and 1812. But if we assume that had Lady Catherine's daughter been healthy enough to be presented, that she would have been presented to the court just prior to that time period, the man announcing her to the queen would have been George Legge, the third Earl of Dartmouth. Now, once the lady's name was read, if the king happened to be there, they would curtsy to his majesty, who would then salute them. They would have removed their right glove beforehand, just in the case the king wanted to kiss her hand, but this rarely happened. Instead, he would usually just salute. When ladies were presented to the queen, the ceremony differed a little bit depending on the lady's rank. Those whose rank gave them a formal address of right, honorable, or higher would approach the queen with the glove of their right hand removed, as if to receive a kiss, and they would then curtsy before her majesty, who would then salute them. Those of lower ranks would leave their gloves on, curtsy so low as to almost be kneeling, and then kiss the queen's hand. For example, if you were the wife of a duke, your title of formal address would be most honorable, which is higher than high honorable, so you'd be in the group that took your glove off. However, the daughter of a duke would be announced as the lady, which is lower ranked than right honorable, and so you would leave your glove on and kiss the queen's hand. If that daughter married, say, the eldest son of an earl, she would be addressed as right honorable. But if she married the younger son of an earl, her address would remain the lady. And this is one more reason why some women like Miss Crawford in Mansfield Park were more interested in marrying an eldest son. The rules for this are complicated, and as I mentioned back in season one when we discussed the ranks and forms of address for Sir Walter and Lady Dalrymple, if you're interested in the nuances of getting forms of address correct, I highly recommend Laura Ann Wallace's website on Peerage Basics. So now that we know how presentations worked, there remains the question of who actually got to be presented and why. Women of rank, that is, the wife or daughter of a knight or higher, could be presented upon entering society. This usually occurred when they were 17 or 18 years old. Women could also be presented when they got married or if their name changed for some reason, such as their husband being appointed to a new rank in the peerage. If they were traveling abroad, even to Ireland, they could be presented for that. 
or if they had been appointed to some special position or to carry out some service for the monarchy. Men were presented upon obtaining a commission in the army, being promoted as an officer within the army or the navy, or if they had been appointed to a position in the government or the church, and if they had been received some other title of rank. Okay, before we wrap up, one more quick note on a book mentioned in this chapter. Mr. Bennett grows tired of entertaining his guests and suggests that Mr. Collins read to the ladies. Mr. Collins readily assented, and a book was produced, but on beholding it, for everything announced it to be from a circulating library, he started back and, begging pardon, protested that he never read novels. Kitty stared at him, and Lydia exclaimed. Other books were produced, and after some deliberation he chose Fordyce's Sermons. Lydia gaped as he opened the volume, and before he had, with very monotonous solemnity, read three pages, she interrupted him. Fordyce's Sermons was a really popular two-volume collection of sermons written by Scottish clergyman James Fordyce, and they're sometimes referred to by their alternate title, Sermons to Young Women. I mentioned earlier how preachers were the social media influencers of the Regency era, and Fordyce was one of the most popular preachers in London in the late 1700s, but by the turn of the century, some women had begun to feel that his strictures on the proper role and behavior of young women were a bit old-fashioned, as evidenced by Lydia's reaction here. And while I don't like to get into the deeper literary analysis of Austin's works on this podcast, Fordyce's sermons deserves a bit of a special mention. While many people claim that Austin would have taken offense at Fordyce's views on women, some Austin scholars consider Lydia's reaction to Fordyce to be a foreshadowing of her fate in the novel. Many of the warnings that Elizabeth later gives to her father about Lydia and Kitty's behaviors, the subsequent discussions she has with Jane and her aunt about Lydia, and Wickham's behaviors and attractions, and even Lydia's ultimate fate, are all in line with many of the warnings espoused by Fordyce in this collection of sermons. Based on this, and the fact that Austin was the daughter of a clergyman, some scholars believe that Austin was in agreement with much of what Fordyce wrote. If you're interested in learning more about that, I recommend the paper Intertextuality and Ideology, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and Jane Fordyce's Sermons to Young Women by Dr. Laurel Voracek, who is a professor of English at the University of Dayton. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to help support the show, please head over to leefalencom slash mycousinjane, sign up for our newsletter, or click on the little donate button. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.